Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Account Settled. All right, well, during Old Testament times, the Jews, and, and rightfully so, the Jews put a huge emphasis on keeping the law of Moses. Okay, but there was a problem. The problem is that many of them misunderstood why the law was given to them in the first place. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to set you up and share the big problem and then the solution, which is found in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And so the problem is that many Jews, and Gentiles, by the way, misunderstood why the law was given to them. When it came to the Jews, a lot of Jews had this mindset. Man, if I can just keep the law, then, and maybe then, God would justify me, right? Remember, justify, acquit, uh, declare me righteous. If I can just keep the law, then God will justify me. If I can just, you know, keep the 613 commandments in Torah, then maybe God will see my righteousness, and then on that basis, maybe he will accept me, okay? That mindset is called works-based righteousness, and as I said before, it's a complete misunderstanding of why the law was given to us in the first place. You need to understand, especially those of you who are new to the Bible, so you're not duped, you need to understand that the law of God was given not to save us, but to show us. The law of God was given to show us our sin and our need for a Savior. That's why the law was given. You say, prove it, okay? Look back at chapter 3, verse 20. Okay, chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds or the works of the law, how much flesh? Help me out. Okay, no flesh will be justified, acquitted, declared righteous, in God's sight. Okay, here it is right here. For by the law is the what of sin? The knowledge of sin. Okay, so here's how it works, or it's supposed to work, okay? The law says, honor your mother and father. Okay? That law was not given so we can stick our chest out and boast and think, man, I've done really, really good doing that. Um, no, if you're really, really honest, you know, well, remember that time? And you're thinking right now, oh, great, yeah, thanks for reminding me, Pastor Mike. Remember that time when you dishonored your mom? Remember that time when you dishonored your dad? By the way, um, as long as you are under the roof of your parents, you are called upon by God to obey your parents. But then after you move out, hey, you don't have to obey them anymore, but you sure have to honor them for the rest of your life. Some of you guys are not even on speaking terms with your parents. You need to get that right with them. Listen, don't be a right fighter. Don't, don't think, well, I'm right and they're wrong, so I'm not speaking to them. No, humble yourself and just try to mend that relationship. The law says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In other words, don't lie. Okay, that law was not given so we can stick our chest out and think, I have never told a lie. No, because you just did. <laughs> we all lie. So the law is given to show us our sin, lying, and our need for a savior. Do not covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's goods, right? You're not supposed to want what other people have. 
Okay, and so that's supposed to make us think, oh, blew it again, right? What do you call that? That's the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Spirit comes but, uh, to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Listen, this is where a lot of religious people miss it. This is where a lot of people think they're saved and they're not. Unless the Holy Spirit has convicted you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In other words, unless you realize that I'm a sinner and I deserve to be condemned, listen, you can't be saved. You can't get saved until you realize you're lost. You remember the song we just sang? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what like me? A wretch. That's me. And that's you too. Okay? And so the law was given not to save us by works, but to show us our sin and our need for a Savior. That's why Paul wrote to, to the church of Galatia, uh, Galatia Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law was our tutor, teacher, schoolmaster, to bring us to who? Christ, our Savior. That's the purpose of the law of Moses. So you see your sin? I need a Savior. You go run into Christ that we might be justified by works. Is that what it says? No. That we might be justified by faith. The word justified, again, to give the favorable verdict of a complete acquittal. Good news. To be, uh, for, for God to declare you righteous. Not self-righteous. <laughs> I'll explain what kind of righteousness he means in just a moment. But it's, it's to, to acquit, to declare righteous. So what was Paul's message? Paul's message is this. When the Holy Spirit comes and he's drawing you and wooing you and convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and you look at the Bible and you say, uh-oh, I have screwed up. I need a Savior. And then you turn to Christ as your only hope. And by faith you receive him as your Savior and Lord. Then he justifies you. He gives you the favorable verdict of a complete acquittal, all sins, past, present, future, washed away. That was Paul's message, justification by faith. Here's the problem. The false message of justification by works never went away. This is so sad to me, and I talked about this when I taught through Galatians, but Paul would go to a certain city, right? He would lead people to Jesus Christ, he would start a church. He would begin to teach them the Bible, just like I'm teaching the Bible to you guys. People would begin to grow in their faith. But then Paul said, I got to go to another city to start another church. And he would leave. Guess who'd come into the church after Paul left? False teachers. Specifically, they were called Judaizers. These were Jewish people who believed in Jesus, but they said in addition to believing in Jesus, you got to be circumcised. You got to keep the Sabbath. You got to keep the law in order to have any hope, in order to uh, have any hope to be saved. And so the Jews would follow Paul around and they would counter his message. They would say things like this Salvation can't be that simple. You and I have to contribute some way. Paul's message is just easy believism. And it wasn't just the Jews who countered Paul's message. It was also the Gentiles. Guess what? Nothing's changed in 2,000 years. Still today, millions of religious people, both Jews and Gentiles, 
are trying to, listen, if you're with me, can you please say amen here? Because we, we miss this. Today, millions of Jews and Gentiles are trying to establish their own righteousness before God through a religious system of works. Hey, it's fine to believe in Jesus, but it's Jesus and, 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 and. Hey, it's Jesus plus nothing. That's Paul's message. And so Paul says, I need to write the church at Rome. Because obviously there's been reports coming that a lot of people are buying into this works-based righteousness. And so he either takes out a pen or he dictates the letter. And we'll start now in chapter 4, verse 1. Let's find the remedy to the problem of works-based righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what then shall we say that, and what's the next name here? Abraham. Enter now the book of Romans, the hero of the Jewish faith, Abraham, somebody who's respected by Jews and Gentiles all around the world. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? Now let's stop right there. Some of you guys are new to the Bible, and I got to tell you a little bit about Abraham so you understand what Paul is saying here. By the way, wasn't Paul really smart for using the hero of the Jews as an example Uh, to teach uh, his point of justification by faith alone. He uses their hero. He uses the guy that Jews and Gentiles, everybody respects Abraham. Okay, so let me tell you a a little bit about Abraham. Abraham lived about 1,900 years before Christ. He was a really big deal in the Old Testament. He was a really big deal in the New Testament. He's a really big deal in the entire Bible. In fact, uh, Stephen in Acts had this to say about Abraham. He said, the God of glory. By the way, that's the one true and only God. There are no other gods. It's him. Who's that? Yahweh. The the, the great I am. The one who later, 400, 500 years later, will reveal himself to Moses at the burning bush. Okay, but 400 years prior to revealing himself to Moses... He revealed himself to Abraham. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and he said to him, and now um, Stephen quotes from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. God says to Abraham, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Okay, so Abraham was raised in a city called Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur of the Chaldeans was located in um, ancient Mesopotamia, otherwise known as Babylonia, okay? And so if you can see there on the map, um, on the bottom right part of the screen, that body of water shooting up, that's the Persian Gulf. And so we're talking about the area of modern-day southern Iraq. And so in Abraham's time, if you follow that river coming out of the Persian Gulf and you see how it breaks uh, top and bottom, The bottom, that's the Euphrates River, and you see ancient Ur was located on the Euphrates River um, right there in the southern part of Babylonia. Uh, It's a very fertile part of the world. That's why they call it the Fertile Crescent. So in ancient times, the people who lived in that area were called the Chaldeans. So Abraham technically was not a Jew, 
Though many people say he's the, the first Jew, technically he was not a Jew. Technically, Abraham was a Chaldean. The Jews are going to come later in history. Okay, so, so really quick, um, um, the Jews, you know, who are they? Well, you got to understand that Abraham will beget Isaac. Isaac will beget Jacob. Another name for Jacob is Israel. Jacob has 12 sons. The descendants of those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, and so initially, God's people were called the Hebrews. In Genesis 14, it refers to Abram, the Hebrew. Okay, and then you fast forward in history. They're in Egypt. They come out of Egypt. They wander for 40 years. They go into the promised land. Now they're called the Israelites. Then you fast forward all the way to the 6th century B.C. after the Babylonian captivity, the predominant tribe that comes back home from the Babylonian captivity is the tribe of Judah. The word Jew is short for Judah. Okay, and so... God's people, whether you're talking about the Hebrews, the Israelites, or the Jews, it's God's people. All right, so before Abraham was called Abraham, he was called Abram. And what you got to understand is that Joshua 24.2 says that Abram, or Abraham, came from a family of pagan idolaters. That means before he was 75 years old and God revealed himself to, to Abraham, he was living in spiritual darkness. You guys remember your time living in spiritual darkness. He was, he was, his family were pagan idolaters. He was surrounded by people who believed in God's little g. They put their trust in false gods. Nonetheless, the one true God, Yahweh, revealed himself to Abraham. Now listen, that's what you call grace. God didn't have to do that, but he did it anyway. And what did he say to Abraham when he revealed himself to Abraham? Here it is. Get out. <laughs> right? Get out. Out of your country. From your family. From your father's house. Why would God say that? Because he's living in an area of the world that's steeped in spiritual darkness. Abraham, I'm getting ready to do a new thing, and I choose you. Totally by my grace. I'm revealing myself to you. I'm bringing you out. Um, the word Hebrew, uh, some, some, sometimes people translate it um, an, an alien or somebody from far away. Okay, so, hey, Abram the Hebrew... Um, I'm taking you out. You're a Chaldean. Later on, you're going to be called Abram the Hebrew. But I'm, I'm choosing you by my grace, and I'm taking you out. I want you to get out of your country. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your father's house. And I want you to go to, third line down, a, what's the word? Land that I will show you. I will make you a great, what? Nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Quick side note, it's always good to let God make your name great instead of trying to make your own name great. Don't try to make your own name great. Pride goes before a destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If God wants to make your name great, let him make your name great. But let it be God, not you. 
can, can you tell I just, I hate boasting. I hate when, when, when people boast about all their accomplishments and how great they are. It's just it's such a turnoff. And so I'm going to call you to a land. I'm going to make you and your descendants a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will, look at this, I will bless those who bless you, okay? Listen, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. As far as I know, that promise has never been revoked. That means if you want to be blessed, bless the Jews. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for Israel. Some people, for whatever reason, they get so mad when I talk like this. I'm just teaching the Bible. If you want a blessing on your life, bless God's people, the Jews. If you want a curse on your life, then curse them. Okay, it's, it's up to you. Okay, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And look at this. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so God makes three promises to Abraham. He promises that he's going to give his descendants a great land. He promises that he's going to make his descendants into a great nation. He promises that Abraham is going to be a, a, a huge blessing. Now, how many of you guys believe that God is a promise keeper and not a promise breaker? All right, he did exactly what he said. He did exactly what he said. And so 1,900 years before Christ, he says it. Guess what? History says he did it. What did he do? He gave the Hebrews the land of Canaan. Who's Canaan? He's the grandson of Noah. His descendants were a bunch of wicked idolaters. They lived in um, what we, we know now as the promised land. And listen, they were wicked, vile people. God gave them not a couple years. He gave them hundreds of years to repent of their idolatry and their sexual immorality and the fact that they were sacrificing their babies to false gods. And they said, no, no, no. And so God said, fine. And God gave their land, the land of the Canaanites, to the Jews, to the Hebrews. Some people get mad at that as well. Well, guess what? God can do whatever he wants to do. He created all of us. Okay, so he did that. He gave them the land. And then he made them a great nation. And then he also made Abraham a blessing to how many people? Well, I underlined it at the very bottom of your screen. He says, in you, Abraham, how many families? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a global blessing through, listen, not all the descendants of Abraham. It's not seeds. You can go back and read Galatians 3 later. It's not seeds, but to seed. Okay, it's not plural. It's, what's the opposite of plural? My mind just went totally blank. Thank you. See how important you guys are to help me out? It's not plural seeds. It's singular seed. So in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Galatians talks about how that's through a seed, one particular descendant. Anybody got an, any idea who, what his name is? Jesus. That's why Matthew opens up the New Testament with these words, and I quote, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. 
Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He's the Messiah. How does he bless all the families? He offers salvation to all. He died for all. He died for everybody. He offers salvation to everybody, Jews and Gentiles. And so look at verse 1 again. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? I, I think um, that that word flesh there is referring to his sinful nature. In other words, Abraham knew that he was saved by grace. He knew he was a sinner. He knew he needed to be justified. He knew he came, came from a land of spiritual darkness and a family of pagan idolaters. And so what has Abraham found according to the flesh? Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What is Paul doing? Paul's a genius. He takes the hero of the Jews, and he uses their hero as the example to refute the false doctrine of justification by works, trying to work your way to heaven, trying to establish your own righteousness before God. He uses Abraham as the example. If you're taking notes, here's your next point. If Abraham was justified by works, he could have boasted before God. Can you imagine Abraham boasting before God? Now, this conversation never happened. But theoretically, if Abraham would have boasted uh, to God, he would have said something like this. God, you have to justify me. Why? <laughs> well, when you told me to get out of my country and uh, away from my family and go to a special land, um, I did that. I obeyed. That's a good work, right? I obeyed. I, I picked up everything. I didn't even know where I was going. Didn't even have GPS. I just said, honey, let's go. We just started walking, right? And so, hey, that's pretty big obedience. I think you should justify me. We eventually made it to the promised land, me and Sarah. We settled down. We were really good neighbors. We were good people. I think you should justify me. I think not only that, but later on, as you read my story, um, you, you'll remember how my nephew, Lot, was abducted by the three wicked kings. And, and so me and my men, we mustered up our courage. We did the heroic uh, thing, and we, we went after Lot. And we rescued him, right? That was a good deed. I think you ought to justify me, God. Not only that, but later on, I tithed to Melchizedek. 400 years before the law was ever given, I, I, I tithed, not because I had to, because I got to. <laughs> That's a good work. I think you ought to justify me. Not only that, but in Genesis 17, um, when you said get circumcised, I was circumcised. I, I, I did all these good things, Lord. I think you should just acquit me. I think that you should declare me righteous. Now again, that conversation never took place because Abraham was a sinner saved by grace. You see, if, if Abraham would have boasted to God, God could have easily said, yeah, but when I called you, Abraham, to leave your family and your father to go to a land that I would show you, um, why is it, Abraham, that you took your father, Terah, and your nephew, Lot? That wasn't part of the plan. And partial obedience is disobedience. And not only that, but Abraham, why did you stop in Haran so long? That wasn't part of the plan. 
I told you to go to a new land. You stopped halfway. You waited till your father died. I told you to leave your father. Partial obedience is disobedience. And not only that, what about that time, Abraham, when you told your wife, Sarah, I mean, I know she's beautiful, but you told her to lie to Pharaoh and say that she was your sister instead of your wife. And Abraham could have said, well, technically, God, she was my half-sister, and so that's a half-truth. Well, a half-truth's a whole lie. Right? And not only that, Abraham, uh, but what about that time when you tried to help me out? I told you I'm going to give you and Sarah a son. And after some years, it didn't happen, and so you took matters into your own hands. You tried to help me out. You went and had relations with your wife's handmaid named Hagar. She gave birth to Ishmael. Abraham, you made a mess trying to help me out. And not only that, but then later in life, you told Sarah to lie again about being your sister to King Abimelech. And that was 20 years after you told her to lie to Pharaoh. It seems like you never really got victory over the sin of lying. Okay, here's my point. Abraham, in fact, let's allow God's word to make the point. Look at verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Not before God. Hey, you and I can't boast before God. Why? Because just like Abraham, all of us are sinners who are saved by grace and grace alone. Okay, so I think the reason that Paul keeps hammering this, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, is because everything in our world is the exact opposite of this message. Everything in our world is study hard, make that A. Work hard, um, climb up that corporate ladder of success. Work out hard, have the right body. Everything is work, work, work. Achieve, achieve, achieve. And then, you know, you deserve this. It's, it's, it's such a, a different message, is it not, outside in the world. And then you come into the house of God and you hear God's word. And it's an opposite message. And he has to keep hammering it so that we get it. Okay, so he's not done hammering. Look at verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Here's what it says. Abraham worked really hard for God. Is that what it says? Okay, help me out. Abraham what? Believed God. And it, talking about his faith, was accounted, I'll come back to that word, to him for righteousness. Now, before we get into the belief part, can I just turn your attention back to chapter th uh, uh, verse 3? I love it, I love it, I love it. He says, what does the Scripture say? Isn't that the most important question, ladies and gentlemen? What else matters? What does the Scripture say? Not what does man say. Not what do the church fathers say. Not what does church tradition say. Not what does the Pope say. Not what do, does Pastor so-and-so say. None of that matters. This and only this 
is our final authority for all matters of faith and practice. Right here. This is it. People say, well, why can't all you churches get, you know, uh, get together and all come? Why, why has there got to be so many different churches? Because there's a lot of churches that are following the dictates of man. We don't want anything to do with that. We want to follow this book. And so not taking verses out of context and saying whatever you want to say, like is the practice of a lot of churches today. We leave the verses in their context, and we pray that God will help us to rightly divide the word of truth. But ladies and gentlemen, this is our authority. This is our life. This is God's word. This thing has power. And some of you guys have to blow the dust off it on Sunday morning to bring it to church because you're not in it. You are not tapping into God's power. We ought to be tapping into God's power every single day on our knees, asking the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and speak to us not just on Sunday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, who cares what man says, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Well, what's going to happen? You shall be like a tree planted by a river of water whose leaf will never wither. Your fruit will bear fruit in its season. And listen, whatever you do shall prosper. You want to be blessed? You want to prosper? Get into this book. Make it your highest goal to understand this word. And what happens, as Pastor Chuck Smith, who's now with Jesus in heaven, always taught us when he was alive, feed your sheep. Teach the word of God. Why? Because well-fed sheep will naturally reproduce. And so, get into God's word. What does the scriptures say? Well, if you're taking notes, here's what it says. Abraham was justified by faith alone. Now, hold your place in Romans 4. Go left, all the way to Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to see exactly what Paul was talking about in the context. Okay, so if you're looking at Genesis 15, say amen so I know I can go. By the way, Abraham is 85 years old right now. Okay, so he was 75 back in 12 when God revealed himself to Abraham. And now, a few chapters later, he's 85. His wife, Sarah, is about 75 years old. And so after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, he's discouraged. Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? In other words, man, my wife and I have been trying and trying and trying to have children. She can't get pregnant. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Is this what you want, God? Verse 3. Then Abraham said, or Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. In other words, if I die without any kids, Eliezer is going to be my heir. Is, is that what you want, God? Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one, Eliezer, shall not be your heir, 
but one who will come from your, what's the next two words? Own body. People are thinking, um, he's 85. <laughs> His wife is 75. What are you talking about? Okay. Some, you're going to have a son. He's going to come from your own body. He'll be your heir. Verse 5. Then God, I love this. You've got to picture this in your mind. It's, it's the middle of the night. Then God brought him outside and he said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to Abram, so shall your descendants be. Here's verse 6. And Abram, what's the word? Believed. You may want to circle that. Believed in the Lord. In other words, he believed what God said. And he, God, accounted it to him for righteousness. And so Abraham and Sarah tried so long to have a child, they were not able. And so God said back in chapter 12, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Abraham's thinking, it's hard to become a great nation when you can't even have one son. And so he's discouraged, he's downhearted, and he wasn't getting any younger, neither was his wife. As I said over and over, because I really want to show you the impossibility of this, he's 85, she's 75. But then God takes him out under the stars. He says, look up, count the stars if you're able. So shall your descendants be. And then how did Abraham respond? It says that he believed the Lord. He believed. Now, that's the verse, Genesis 15, 6, that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. So you may want to write Romans 4, 3 next to Genesis 15, 6. What is Paul doing? Again, what's the problem? The problem is you've got all these people, Jews and Gentiles, who are trying to establish their, um, um, their own works before God, so God will accept them, works-based righteousness. That's the problem. Paul comes in. He says, hey, Remember your hero, Abraham? How was he justified? Genesis 15, 6, he believed. And God accounted it to him as righteousness. Now, if you're with me, can you say amen here? You got to get this. Abraham believed that what God said he would do. Abraham did not come up with with what he wanted God to do and then tell God to do that. No, God spoke and Abraham believed. In other words, here's what I'm saying. A lot of people in church, churches today, it's called name it and claim it. I like to call it blab it and grab it. And so completely apart from what God says, they come up with what they want God to do. And then they say, I was going to say stupid things, but I won't say that because people are watching. And then they do stupid things like they, they say, I speak financial blessing over you. I speak prosperity over you. I speak health over you. In Jesus' name. What? Where does that come from? How do you know that guy, that God wants that guy to be rich? 
How do you know that, guy, that God wants that guy to be completely healthy? How do you know that, guy, that God wants that guy to be materially prosperous? Okay, what about the missionary couple in a third world nation whose wife, his wife is sick with pneumonia, he doesn't have two cents to rub together, yet he's going out sharing his faith, building God's church. He's not rich. He's not healthy. His wife's not. He's not prosperous. Are you trying to tell me that God's blessing's not on that guy? You see how we twist the scriptures and try to conform God into our image? No, you don't tell God what to do. Who do you think you are? You receive what God has already said in his word, and then you believe what he's already said, the promises of God in the scriptures. And you know what happens? As you're reading through, because you're spending time in God's word, not once a week, but every day, as you're spending time with God, you hit a promise, and the Holy Spirit of God moves in your heart, and he says, that's for you. And then listen, 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 listen. And even if it seems impossible, you believe God. You believe God, and he'll do it. He'll absolutely do it, right? That's the way it works. That's the way it works. And so God said, you're going to have a son through Sarah. Guess what happened? 14 years later, God made him still wait. <laughs> See, it's all about God's timetable, not our timetable. 14 years later, Abraham's 100 years old. Sarah's 90. She gets pregnant. She has a baby. His name, Isaac. You know what Isaac means? Laughter. That's what you do when a 100-year-old guy gets a 90-year-old woman pregnant. You laugh and you laugh and you laugh. And, and they were laughing tears of joy. Why? Because it seemed impossible. But God is the God of the impossible. If he says it, he will do it. You got to believe him. You got to trust him. Don't give in to fear. The reason I'm hitting this is because God is speaking to some of you guys. God spoke to us way back in year two or so. You're going to have a Christian school someday. It's year 12. There's no Christian school. But guess what? God gave us a piece of land six months ago. And right now it's going through a site plan approval, which, by the way, is going to take until like August or September. But anyway, hey, you know what? It seems impossible, but God's going to do it someday. We're going to look across the street, and there's going to be a K through 8, maybe even a K through 12. I don't know. There's going to be that school over there. There's going to be hundreds of little kids that are receiving a biblical worldview, high academics, growing in the Lord, going out into our world to change our world. It will happen because God said it will happen. I'm not naming it and claiming it. I'm not blabbing it and grabbing it. God spoke to my heart in year two. So he's going to do what he said, even though it seems impossible. And by the way, we'll get opposition. You always get opposition when God calls you to do something. But you got to press forward. Ladies and gentlemen, some of you are giving in to fear because it seems impossible. The first thing you need to do is get in God's word every day so he can start speaking to your heart through his scriptures. And then once you have that relationship up and running, Begin to courageously begin to take steps of faith. And you watch, even though there's opposition, even though it seems impossible, God will come through. Go ahead and turn back to Romans chapter 4. Stay with me all the way to the end here, okay? Because we're going to have to accelerate through the last few verses here. 
What was the result of Abraham's faith? Verse 3 says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Here's the result. It was accounted to him for righteousness. What does that word mean exactly? If you're taking notes, it means to pass to one's account. It means to impute. Now, that word appears 11 times in Romans 4. You think God's trying to say something? 11 times for all, all, everyone who says, my works have to contribute something. No. 11 times. The word is a banking term. I strongly discourage the use of credit cards. Unless you are so disciplined, you can pay those things off every single month so you're not paying interest. Okay, so even though I don't like credit cards, I'm going to use a credit card statement as an illustration of this word. Let's say you have a credit card. Let's say you get the statement. You open your statement. Here's what it, it shows all the transactions for the previous month, right? It shows all the expenditures. It shows the accrued interest. It shows um, all of your payments. And then there's a balance at the bottom. But what you got to understand is that some people abuse their credit cards, Imagine, I hope this never happens for you, but imagine if you abused your credit and you got into, over a period of time, $20,000 in un unsecured debt. Now you have this weight. I can't believe I was so dumb. I didn't have the money. I kept charging it and charging it. Okay, so what are you going to do? Apart from the illustration, I think the first thing you should do is get Dave Ramsey's book, it's called Total Money Makeover. You ought to go see Pastor Lee, find out when the next FPU class starts. You should start learning to live within your means and actually develop that dirty word, a budget. Okay, but now back to the illustration, all right? Because we're called to be good stewards of what God gives us. But back to the illustration, you got $20,000 of unsecured debt. You're walking around with a weight, right? And imagine if somehow one of your friends who had some money found out about your debt. He knocked on your door. He sat down on your kitchen table. He wrote you a $20,000 check. I would be saying hallelujah too. What would you do? You'd jump up and down. You'd kiss him. You'd hug him. You'd thank him over and over and over again. Why? Because he's depositing that $20,000 to settle your account. Now you're understanding what Paul means by this word in verse 3. Next point, if you're taking notes. If we trust Christ for our salvation, Christ alone, God will deposit whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness into our spiritual bank account, and he'll stamp account settled on our statement. That's some good news. You know why? Because someday when we go to heaven, and all of us are going to die. Ten out of ten people don't make it off the earth alive. Have you noticed? Okay. So someday you have an appointment with your creator. If you have this bank statement, so to speak, and it's been stamped, account settled, because you trusted in Christ that his death pays for all your sins, God's going to say, take the elevator, go on up. But if you walk up to God thinking that he's got to let me in, I was a good person, He's, you're going to hear this. Depart from me. I never knew you. And you're going to get on an elevator that's going down. 
Now, is that God's will? No, it's not God's will that any should perish. But we cannot establish our own righteousness before God and think that God's going to accept us. Let me um, go on to verse 4. we got to hurry up here, okay? So verse 4, now to him who works, right, who thinks i got to work for heaven, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. But to him who does not work, okay, does not work. Why are we so thick-headed? Why are we so hard-hearted? Why are we still inventing these religious systems? Him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Next point, working for a wage is just the opposite of receiving the free gift of salvation. And so when you work all week and you go to your boss and he gives you a paycheck, you don't say to your boss, Oh, man, you're so gracious. Thank you for this free gift. No, you sweated 45 hours for that paycheck. You earned it. It's not a free gift. Hey, it's just the opposite with our salvation. If you think that you're working and God's going to accept your work, then what you're saying is that God owes you something. God does not owe anybody anything. God is not in debt to anyone. Somebody says, I'm still not convinced. Okay, here's my last-ditch effort for everybody who's trying to establish your own righteousness before God, okay? Here's my last-ditch effort. I'm going to give you the most radical verse in the Bible, and hopefully this will wake you up. Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like Filthy rags. What does the word filthy rag mean in the original language? Don't send me an email. Don't send me an email. I'm sharing the original language here. Here it is. Menstruation. Filthy rag stained garment. Blue letter Bible. You can look it up yourself. Do you really think a holy, righteous God as somebody walks into his presence and says, you've got to let me in. Here, look, all my good works. You really think God's going to let him in? No. All our righteousness is like filthy rags. Every single good deed we ever did before we met Jesus Christ is a filthy rag. It cannot save. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. There's still people coming up to me after these services in tears. I got it. What'd you get? I finally got the gospel of grace. I realized there's nothing I can do. It's all because of Jesus Christ. You know why they're crying? Because they just experienced regeneration in their heart. You cannot experience regeneration until you come to Christ empty-handed and you say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling, period. Period, that's it. That's the only way. And so, what's an example of a guilty sinner who was saved by grace alone? David, look at verse 6. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Okay, and so David says in verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven 
whose sins are covered. He's quoting from Psalm 32. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So David, a man after God's own heart, you know the story. He fails miserably. He has sex with another man's wife, Bathsheba. Then he tries to cover it up. He has her husband move to the front lines. Everybody else withdraws so he can be killed. That's called murder. Adultery and murder. David sinned really bad. Another hero of the Jewish faith, by the way. And then, thank God, a man named Nathan, a prophet, confronted him on his sin. Thank God for men of God who just tell it like it is and let the chips fall because that led to David's genuine repentance. He repented. He put his faith in the Lord. And you know what God said? I'm going to damn you when you die. That's not what he said. Don't you understand? God's also a God of love. But we're talking about he slept with another man's wife. He committed murder. He deserves to go to hell. Listen, Jesus experienced hell for David on the cross. Jesus experienced David's punishment on the cross. And so when when David turned to God in repentance and faith alone, God said, you're forgiven. And David writes in Psalm 32, man, my lawless deeds, they're forgiven. My sins are covered. God's not going to count my sin against me. And so we're out of time, so I'm just going to read verses 9 through 11, okay? And then we'll make a couple more points, and then we're done, okay? So verse 9, stay with me here. Does this blessedness, okay, that's the blessedness of imputed righteousness, not self-righteousness. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, the Jews only, or upon the uncircumcised also, Gentiles? Where we say that faith, was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Okay, so how then was it accounted? While he was circumcised? Is that why he got saved? Or uncircumcised? Paul says not while he was circumcised, but while he was uncircumcised. Okay, so everybody please look at me. He, Paul knew the Jews, were, some Jews would say, the reason God justified Abraham is because Abraham was circumcised. He went through a religious ritual. There's a problem with that bad theology. Here's your last point. God justified Abraham in Genesis 15. That was 14 years before he was circumcised in Genesis 17. You guys see that? Okay, and so Genesis 15, Abraham believes God. God says, I declare you righteous. He's saved. 14 years later, he gets circumcised. He goes through a religious ritual, okay? Circumcision was not what saved him. His faith is what saved him. You cannot be saved by a religious ritual. You can be saved only by Christ alone. And so our last two verses as the worship team comes up, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who, what's the word? Believe over and over and over and over and over, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. That's me and you. 
and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, the Jews, but those Jews who walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. Here's my point. And then we're going to sing and we'll, we'll be done, okay? There's Jesus Christ. I said this last week. As long as you think of some religious ritual is going to save you, here's what you're doing. Well, I believe in Jesus, right? Believe. But I, I think I got to be baptized too. You're not in. Well, I, I believe in Jesus, but I believe that I got to also receive communion. It's, it's both. It's faith and a religious ritual. You're not in. I, I believe in Jesus, but I, I think, man, our good works, God, come on. Common sense says you, we got to do something to contribute to this. You're not in. Then the Holy Spirit speaks to you. Hey, you're a sinner. You're on your way to hell. Jesus died for you. He rose again. And now you say, Jesus, it's all you. I trust you and you alone. And now you're in. It's faith alone. Now, until you get that, you can't grow in your Christian life. One of the greatest gifts God can give His children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www. Dot calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.